So um, if you want to follow along in your prayer book, um, we're going to pick up where we left off, which is the offertory. So we'll look on page um, 114. So we'll kind of pick up where we left off. Um, and Deacon, as always, like when things strike you, just jump on. Um, so um, the offertory is, um, I think, in some ways, like a, it's not always immediately apparent how significant this moment in the service is, because at least from my background, it seems like, oh, it's the time you like collect the money, set the table. Doesn't seem so significant, but with every passing year, the sense of it of its significance has grown to my mind. Of like, um, we are actually God. We are God's rational creatures, as He made us in His image, and we give ourselves and our substance. You know, we our tithe of money, and then in the prayer, we actually even offer like ourselves. You know, we offer ourselves, our souls and bodies. We also take inanimate matter, bread and wine. And then we're offering it to the Lord to be used for the purpose of this sacrament. And so, almost like, I think like the little toaster that could, or what's that, what's the that cartoon? Engine. The, little the little engine, engine, engine that could, or what's that, little, oh, the little toaster, that was a movie, the little, the brave, that? The, brave the brave little toaster, that's it. Yeah. Like all ordinary bread is just ordinary bread. But these particular loaves that we bring forward, actually we're taking them out of creation. They were, you know, the wheat was grown in the ground, the grapes were grown out of the vine. They turn into bread and wine through the work, you know, and then we are presenting them to God to that He would use them as the very vehicles through which He would then communicate and transmit His own the divine life of Jesus to us. And so, the, so the offertory is really the special way of saying, Lord, use this bread and wine, and we, the, consecrate. We consecrate. We offer this to you that you would consecrate it to then be for us the body and the blood of Jesus. Um, and so the offertory is actually a, quite a meaningful, not, not quite a very meaningful moment um, of present, presenting our treasure, ourselves, bread and wine, and offering them to God. And it gives, um, you know, I think when we hear the word sacrifice today, we think only of the slaughter of an animal. But sacrifice in the Old Testament often involved slaughter. But the main idea was simply offering, because you could also offer grain, you could offer, there were wine offering, you know, there was drink offerings. And so just this idea of whenever we offer anything to God, that is sacrifice. The verb for sacrifice is to offer. And so we aren't slaying anything anymore because Christ was slain once for all on the cross. But we are still offering him ourselves, our substance, bread and wine. And so there's a sort of sacrificial quality in the way that the offertory is one of those moments in the liturgy that has some sort of uh, connection to the old covenant sacrifices. Like we come, in the old days you would bring, you know, old days, old covenant days, you would bring your goat to the temple and the priest would take it and offer it to God for you. And we still kind of do the same, it's just with dollar value and bread and wine now, and no longer anticipating Christ, but looking back to Christ. Um, in the way the old covenant sacrifices point to Christ, now the, the offering of bread and wine points backwards to Christ's death on Golgotha. So that sacrificial quality is introduced to us um, in the offertory. So that's um, kind of the explanation of what's structurally happening um, there in the midst. Um, Deacon, anything you wanted to offer there about offertory? Just kind of, the, the, you know, it took me for forever to realize that what we were offering was not the collection plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's part of it, but it's probably like the smallest part of it. Yeah. I mean, the, what we're really offering is the gifts. Mm. Um, 
data space and, and have and have a, a you know our own time that where we can actually do stuff like this on service I really do look forward to bringing forth you know having ushers bring forth the gifts yeah the bread and the wine and yeah as kind of like the 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 emphasis that that is what we're offering yes yeah, yeah. and for the first couple of years of my being here I kind of thought like the money was kind of dirty. I mean, like morally, like because it's like money, and so I wouldn't. I, I didn't put it on the altar. I used to put it. We used to put it on the credence after the collection, and then when I learned that the older Anglican customs, no, you put it on the altar with the bread and the wine. At first, I was shocked, like money on the altar, and then I was like, no, that's exactly right. We're taking what is could be used for worldly ends, but we're giving it to God here, and by putting on the altar, we're communicating symbolically. We give this to you, God. And anything given to God is consecrated. And so now I have the opposite of fear of like putting money on the altar. It's like that's the best place to put money yeah. and, and to give it to God rather than just to some fear of, you know, fearful saving or self-indulgent spending or, you know, something else. So, um, yeah. That's why the, uh, the offering plate was always kept on the altar in the old images to highlight the connection between the oblation Ah. And, uh, and the altar. And so Lancelot Andrews actually encouraged people to give their tithe at the rail uh, to highlight the connection of the oblation to the altar. Like as you're coming up for communion. Yeah, so you would come. But the, but in case that looked like you were buying the sacrament, yeah. it encouraged you to, after receiving, you then go give your alms at the alms box. Oh, it's like a thank offering. Yeah, almost. so you're showing the connection between the, the gifts of the Whoa, cool. Mm. I like that. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really beautiful. I don't know how you would do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's a really lovely thought. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, especially in capital, like kind of our capitalist free market thing, like we really get that money communicates value. Like yeah. that's what the thing we value the most in our culture. And so to, to give our money to God is especially meaningful today. It's not less meaningful. Yeah, Andrews also says that uh, priests should visibly give their offerings. Once the plate's brought up, it's brought up and the priest should put his money in so that it's clear that like you're not giving money to the priest. Yeah. What's happening is the priest is making That's his awesome. sacrifice yeah. and it's being given to God on the altar. Oh, I like that. Yeah, because huh? yeah, yeah. Carrie, my wife, puts in our, our offering, but then it's not... Yeah. But then it looks like this plate of money is being brought up to the yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's why I do the ritual gesture of taking the plate and then lifting it up. Yeah. Just in a sort of analogous way to which we lift up the bread and the wine in communion to say, God, we're offering this to you. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of like Pentecost when they all sold everything and yeah. brought it for the church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The body. Yeah. Mm. The, um, I just realized, looking at my prayer book, that we made it to the piece, but we didn't actually talk about the piece um, last time. And so what I wanted to, maybe just one word about the piece. Um, in different liturgies, different like traditions of liturgy, the piece sometimes exists in different places, but the idea is always the same, that because we've been reconciled to God through forgiveness of our sins, therefore we are reconciled with each other. But it also provides like a space, so we pass the piece, and. It also provides a space, you know, as the Lord said in the parable, like if you're, if you're taking an offering to the altar and you have a, you know, your brother has issue with you, go and reconcile with your brother. Um, there have been there were many times when I was a college student when I'd gone in some argument with someone and, 
at the peace, I'd run across the church to where they were and say, hey, I'm so sorry, and they'd forgive me, and then we'd go have communion together. <laughs> you mean it's, just, it's not just a place to shake hands and say hi? It's not just a place to shake hands and say oh, okay. hi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's why we extend the peace, as I say. We are reconciled. We are at peace with one another as neighbors, uh, as the body of Christ. Um, we come in peace. It's necessary for the, the discipline of Holy Communion as well. Mm. Can you where, say, yeah. Uh, so the parable tells us that if there are two people in the parish who cannot be reconciled to each other, there's some kind of fight or beef. Uh, the priest can't commune them until it's reconciled. Mm. And so that's part of what that peace is there for. And so if there's someone you cannot in good faith pass the peace with, it's also to tell you you can't come to the altar. Mm. And, that's, and that's a rubric in the prayer book. Mm. Uh, Can you show us the page number? Yeah, so it's on 143. And it's the second paragraph. When the priest sees that there is enmity between members of the congregation, mm. the priest shall speak privately to each of them, telling them that they may not receive communion until they have forgiven each other. And if the person or persons on one side truly forgive the other, desire and promise to make up for their faults, but those on the other side refuse to forgive, the priest shall allow those who are penitent to come to communion, but not those who are obstinate. Mm, there it is. Yeah. I'm glad to be refreshed in the reminder of that myself. Mm. So would he, how would like, he just... Privately and kindly. Out? I was going to say... <laughs> from the pulpit, <laughs> pointing, actually. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and if the person doesn't listen, I've been directed by bishops to, if they still come to communion anyways, just skip them. And then if they make a stink, then it's your duty to say out loud while you're skipping them. I was like, but it's never come to that. Yeah. And they should know. You should tell them. No one would be surprised why. <laughs> I've had to on a couple occasions, and the people have always great, you know, honored and said, yeah, okay, I won't, I won't receive. So, yeah. Hmm. But it is sobering. It is yeah, sobering. Like God's not playing. Yeah. And yeah. Especially since this, God is, is, not this is the sacrament of our union. Right. right. As well. Like St. Augustine says, because it's the body of Christ and we are the body of Christ, in a very real sense, it's us who's on the altar. Yeah. Um, which is what St. Paul says, that the bread is made from the scattered seeds which have been collected, which is mm. us drawn together into the one loaf. Right? Mm. And so, it, exactly, mm. it's one body. Yeah. Mm. So if there's mm. no union, don't get to participate in the sacrament of mm. our union, you know. Uh, you don't get to, to skip to it. In mm. fact, it's probably if scripture and the prayer book are correct, which we believe they are, then it's, it's dangerous to do that. Mm. You know, we don't get to force grace. <laughs> we yeah. receive grace from mm. God thankfully on his terms. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm very appreciative of this rubric. Mm. It's, it's a sober reminder to me that I need to be like, oh yeah, I hope I'm on good terms with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> maybe think about who I need to forgive and who I need to beg forgiveness before before I come to the table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, God is not playing. <laughs> yeah. So you're a crumb if you're not crumb. Yeah. <laughs> Just a crumb. Crummy to Yeah. Um and then we come in the liturgy to the Sosum Quota, which is um Latin for lift up your hearts. And so this part of the liturgy is um, one of the pieces that the exact language of it is very, very old, like back to um, the very first early centuries of the church. And another translation you could say is lift up your hearts or um, set your minds on heaven is a sort of another translation. Like think, set your minds on heaven, lift up your hearts, set your minds on heaven, 
We're about to do heavenly things here. And then what we're about to do is introduced with, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the word for give thanks in Greek is Eucharisteo, Eucharist. That's what we're about to do. We're about to give thanks for Christ's atoning death on the cross. Um, so we're about to give him thanks and praise. Um, and then um, we have, you know, I mentioned last time that there's sort of two places where we get like the seasonal spicing that flavors the Eucharist different week to week. The collect for the week and then the proper preface, which if you listen closely, changes according to the church season, reinforcing like what is the specific aspect of God's saving work that we are giving particular thanks for this Sunday. So of course, this Sunday being Pentecost, in that proper preface, we give thanks to God for all your work, including that you sent the Holy Spirit um, to, to heal us and sanctify us and unite us to Jesus. So that's where the proper preface, and then there, there is a list of them. Um, I think we looked at that last time in uh, the back of the, the liturgy. Um, and then I, I love the, what comes right after the proper preface in the middle of the page. This bit, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Because it just, I feel like it's just this momentary instant zoom out that what we're doing here isn't in imitation of what's happening in heaven. It's actually joining with what's in heaven. Participation with. Participation with, exactly. We're seated in heavenly places. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that the, the, cool. in this moment when we are worshiping the Father in the name of Jesus by the Spirit, we are actually sort of this church, the room you're in becomes the very forecourts of eternity and heaven. And all the angels, and I, and I love thee, but even the Christians who've died in centuries past, we know from Revelation, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. So then we go into the Sanctus and we sing what we see every time we get the vision of the highest realms of heaven, you know, Isaiah and Revelation, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. Um, and when we sing that, we're, we're sort of joining in a harmony of chorus, like we're all the redeemed saints, the angels, and us in heaven who've not yet finished our earthly pilgrimage together. Holy, holy, holy. So it's so called, it's me, it's one of the most cosmic moments in the Eucharist is, is the Sanctus. And that's partly why you've noticed that Deacon and I, we bow, partly because that we're reverencing when we say holy three times. Hello. Hi. Sort of. We're just doing like a Christian education hour right now, but not a lot of people came, so we're just sitting very casually. You're welcome to join. You know, please do. Come on in, come on, please. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get more information online. Yeah. And did not. Ah, we should update the website. Yes. <laughs> Me and Dee can take care of the website. So. Please. Yes, I'm so sorry. Because I've been trying to get more information. Um, yeah. I'm Ben, I, by the way. Ruth. Ruth, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, I just moved here with my family from Brockton, Massachusetts. Okay. So about a year and a half ago, and we're still church hunting. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I work on the weekends at times, so... Uh -huh. I didn't know if there was anything going on. Is this uh, the Church of God, or is this the Anglican Church? Great question. So we're... I see there's two. Yeah, so That's the Church of God... The Church of God, God, and we're Anglican. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Church of God owns the building, and they've been here 60 years. And oh, yeah. we represent the small Anglican Church that we just rent this building okay. for partial use. So we get... They actually only use it Sunday morning week, so we have a service before them, and then we have weekly services through the weekdays as well. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, do you have a Church of God or an Anglican background or, well, or neither? I have, I have a Messianic background. Okay. But, um, and so the closest Messianic congregations I've found have both been in fields, but I live in Auburn. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So trying to find something a little closer. Yes. Um, okay. I've, I've 
visited Church of God before. I, uh, I've never visited an Anglican church. Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out churches around here. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we, uh, we prefer smaller congregations. Mm-hmm. It's me and my three children. Okay. And because um, when you get in a big congregation, you kind of get lost. Completely agree. Yeah. So we like the smaller congregations because they kind of feel more like you're part of a family. Yeah. Um, but we just haven't found the right match for us here. Yeah. Mm. So. We, if you'd like, you've come at a very opportune time. We, maybe every couple of years we take a couple, um, so we, we dedicate this four o'clock to five o'clock hour just for Christian education. And usually we do studies through the books of the Bible. Okay. But then sometimes we'll do sort of like uh, different seasonal stuff. And so okay. right now we're actually just talking about some of the we worship liturgically on a Sunday morning. Okay. And there's lots of like ritual and structure and kind of deep history to some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. So we're actually in the, a class, which um, I'm the priest of the Anglican Church. Okay. Um, and this is my deacon, Deacon Lincoln. Uh, and this is a friend who's visiting from out of town, Brandon, uh, and a pillar of the church, Laney. And um, a lot of folks are traveling in the summer, so we usually have a few more here on a Sunday night. But, okay. um, and so we're just unpacking kind of the riches of our liturgy, which if you'd like to learn about, you'd be welcome to stay. I'm kind of talking through the prayer book and you could learn a little bit about the Anglican Church if you'd like to stay, and if not. That's not a problem. Okay, great, feel <laughs> free. Okay. Can I go grab, are you Please. having a, or are you just going We're to just talking right now, yeah. Okay. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with 10 minutes of prayer at the end. Okay, so, yeah. sounds good. I'm gonna yeah. go grab my first. Okay, sounds good, okay, okay. great. It may have been the um, Church of God website, which is non-existent. Yeah, because ours has the worship Yeah, yeah. It may have been. Sometimes people think the Google Maps page is your website. Uh-huh. And I, I, oh, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. Or not Google Maps, but you know how Google like, fills in the right-hand side of the page with stuff? Yeah. So it might have been. Like a card or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons, but just on the sanctus, is that we bow partly because of reverence for the name of God, which is sort of suggested in the threefold holy, because it's holy, 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 and there's a sort of try the threefold quality of it is suggestive of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in reverence for the name of God, Deacon Lincoln and I bow. But it's also, I kind of think of it in the same way that the cherubim have two wings to cover their eyes because God's holiness is like too awful to look at. I, I think about bowing then as we're sort of joining with the angels in reverencing what we're looking at spiritually, which is God and for which we cover our faces. So that's actually a very, uh, very, very Jewish idea. Mm. So in the, in the recitation, Shema. Yeah, so come on in. So, we're just, if you, so this is the book we use for our liturgies. It's in the pew. Um, and we're just kind of talk, talking through different elements of it. So if you want to flip to page uh, 115, we celebrate communion each Sunday, and this is like the prayer text that we use to do that. And we're just talking about the on page 115, the Sanctus, which is that little hymn that begins, Holy, Holy, Holy. So that's what that's where the point where we're unpacking right now. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, in the... Uh, yeah, so the, the bowing or I mean, even shielding your eyes is interesting you said that, because in the recitation of the Shema, Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Uh, traditionally in Judaism, you hide your eyes. And part of the reason you do that is because that prayer um, is borrowed from the angels. 
And so there's a sense oh. of worthiness, like we should not be able to pray the prayers of the angels, mm. but we do. Mm. We've taken that portion from it. Mm. So every morning and evening when you say the Shema, at that part, you cover your eyes and mm. lower your head. And so uh, it's really interesting that a very similar concept is developed in the church. Yeah. Wherein when we say the angelic hymn, we also lower ourselves and mm. our gaze. Yeah. Do the, do the same thing during the today when we have the, that's for the name of God yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah the multiple bells in the two days yeah um, and if you have any questions uh, Ruth you said yeah yes. Ruth um, if you have any questions anyone feel free to, to jump in thank yeah. you yeah um, and then um, we come to the prayer of consecration so beginning on top of page 116 and um in a way, there's sort of like a verbal reminder of the gospel is what begins the prayer in both rites, the Anglican Standard and the Renewed Ancient. And so in that first paragraph, we, it's this reminder of what has happened, what God the Son has died on the cross for us, reconciling us to God the Father. Um, and as well, before he did that, the night before he did that, he instituted this meal by which his death is to be remembered. So there's this sort of gospel proclamation and, and rehearsal of the history, as it were, that begins the prayer. Um, and then the second paragraph, this paragraph actually has a name, it's called the epiclesis, which is Greek for expanded to say the calling down of the spirit. And so what we're asking here is merciful father in your goodness, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy spirit, these gifts of bread and wine. So we're saying we, we don't want this, this is no longer just bread and, bread and wine ordinary. We're asking God you to, to, to sanctify this by your Holy spirit to come and bring down, as it were, to us, the risen and mystical body of Christ and his blood, kind of connect, connect. I, I kind of think about this as almost like, this is, this is very rough, but like the Holy Spirit's that like plugs in the, the cable to the outlet. That it's like, and so then like Christ's, the power of Christ, his body and blood kind of comes down through the cable into, you know, kind of connects to the, the tool, again, so the, the, to the tool. And so the bread and the wine, the Holy Spirit connects it to Christ Jesus in heaven because he's always seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, so yeah, so, so that's the sort of the beginning of the consecration of the bread and the wine. And then it's completed with um, what are called the words of institution, which is the next two paragraphs, where as the celebrant the, who's leading the liturgy for communion repeating the very words Jesus said on the night when he instituted his supper. Um, and just, it's really striking to like take on the very words that Jesus said in repetition uh, and remembering that it was Jesus who took this bread and broke it uh, and then repeat those words, take, eat, this is my body. Um, and the order is really significant, I believe, in that Jesus instructs his disciples then and now to receive this thing before you even understand it, before he's even said, this is my body. You could even imagine sort of in, in, the, in the upper room with the Lord at the Last Supper, they could have even like, take and eat this. And they would have been like, okay. And as they're eating it, like, this is my body. Like, Whoa, what? You know, and so the Lord asks us to participate even before we fully understand what it is. And then we understand this is my body. And, the, and you know, the church has fought so much about what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body. And I, in the words of a friend of mine, um, Whatever is means, it is his body, you know? And so in a way that this is obviously non, uh, it's not physically literal because it doesn't taste like as if you bit yourself I and mean, it doesn't taste like flesh. So it's, but it's, 
it's still literal in a, I'm mixing words in a crazy way, but and it's literal in a spiritual way, right? It really is, because he said it is, his body and his blood. And how does that work? We don't know, but that's always been confusing. In John chapter 6, when Jesus talks about, my flesh is true food, and the, 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 food that I, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The teaching was so difficult, it says many disciples left him at that point, because it was too, comp- too difficult a teaching. Um, and so it's always been a difficult teaching. How, how is it his body? Well, the how, Jesus didn't choose to tell us the how. But what he did is give us the what. He just said it is. Um, and so we receive it with the simplicity of children. I love when the kids come to the rail. And they, you know, they're children. They, they understand the first things of God only. But they reach out their hands and this is my body, this is my blood. Um, so... Yeah, so there's great mystery in the words of institution, but we receive them as they sit. He said it's his body. It is his body. I bet you know by how that, what's that Elizabethan rhyme of it is, is it, take it, da, 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 break it. I, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we just, he said it, so we believe it. And there's, we sing that hymn sometimes, um, Humbly I Adore Thee, which is a communion hymn, and one of the lines of the hymn, it's a 12th century hymn. It says, um, What the truth has spoken that for truth I hold, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said it's his body. We just say, okay, <laughs> you know, okay, it's your body, okay. Well, the truth has spoken, that for truth we hold. Um, so yeah, it's something that, um, it's, it's the deep mystery we're invited into as Christians. And so I, I make a point of never trying to like squabble or fight over the different ways in which Christians can argue over it, but to receive it as simply as we can. Um, yeah, any thoughts or questions about that the, or other or additional commentary on the words of institution and the epiclesis? Yeah, so one of the things that, um, and this, this is going to go back to, you know, Father Stephen and, and St. Paul's House of Formation. Uh, one, of the, one of the points that, that Father Stephen makes is that um, the East and the West kind of fight over at what point does the, does the, the bread and, and blood become sanctified? Like, you know, there's, a, there's an emphasis in the East on the Epiclesis, there's an emphasis in the West on the importance of institution. And Father Stephen's take is that in the, in the Anglican tradition, it's the whole thing. It's, they're, they're not, and now I think he would say it's, it's the whole prayer of, of like, from, from the, the top of page 116 to the bottom of page 117. Mm. But I think at, at minimum, it's both the Epiclesis and the words of institution. And mm. he likens it to, it's, the image he uses is talking about, the, you know, the chasuble as a as kind of a, an unbroken garment, mm. and it's a it's a complete, it's mm. a complete thing. So, yeah. yeah, I really, I really that stuck with me, and I really liked it. Yeah, and also sort of sidestep squabbling over yeah. technicalities. It's like no, just, just, no, it's a whole thing. Spread the whole, just, just spread yeah. thing. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah. What was the? You said what the truth is spoken. Uh, that for truth I hold. Okay. Yeah. You'd recognize it as we sang it. What the truth has spoken, that for truth I hold. Um, and then having um, prayed and asked God to himself, as it were, transform bread and ordinary bread and wine into the sacramental body and blood of Jesus. The next, page 117, then what happens is... Um, we then present this sacrament in prayer to God as himself the body. And so, so um, 
and look at the second paragraph. We earnestly desire your Father, goodness, mercy to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And, and so that's, that's a traditional way of describing communion is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It's not a sacrifice of slaughter. It's not a the, Christ's death was once for all. And the first paragraph on page 116 makes that really plain. Christ, in the middle of the paragraph, by his one oblation of himself, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction. The one offering for the sins of the whole world was 2,000 years ago on Calvary. But by a memorial, we remember that offering, and, and as it were, we represent the death of Christ to God. And so we see in that first paragraph on page 117, here we make before your divine majesty, like in your presence, God, the memorial your son commanded us to make. We are remembering this before you. Remember in the Old Testament, it says, and God, you know, remembered. You know, we are remembering before God and the death of Christ. And really, I think one of the prayers that like unlocks this idea of like, we're presenting the sacramental body of Christ to God. Like, how does that work? Is the Good Friday liturgy has this incredible prayer. If you keep your, keep one hand on page 117, um, but then flip to much later in the book, um, to page 570, 577. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Um, the, um, the prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross and death, between your judgment and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. And that idea of placing the blood of Christ between the judgment of God and our souls. That's why in the, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, you know how I lift up the bread and the wine? It's the, the sort of, the gesture is symbolic of, God, our only plea to be spared from hell and welcomed into your presence is the body and blood of Christ. We place, and even lifting it up, we, 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 we pray, place the body and blood of your Son between us and, the, and your judgment, between us and our sins, that we would be washed in it, that we would be called by his name only. Um, and so this idea of offering is, is a sort of renewed plea. Lord, this is our plea. The death of Christ is our plea. Um, and so that we offer, we offer the sacrament to God. We're making this memorial before you, which again in the um, fourth paragraph, is suggestive of, sacri of sacrificial language of offering. Although we are unworthy because of our many sins to offer you, that's that, the verb of, of, of sacrifice, to offer you any sacrifice, yet we ask you to accept this duty and service we owe, this spiritual memorial sacrifice of the sacrifice of Christ, the memorial offering of the remembrance of Christ's death. Uh, and then in the midst of that, we also give ourselves we rededicate ourselves to God every Sunday liturgy in that third paragraph. Here we offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, which means like rational thinking, holy and living sacrifice. So all the sacrifices of the new covenant come together in Holy Communion, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of our tithes, the sacrifice of ourselves and the remembered sacrifice of Christ all get gathered in like a like a four-stranded braid in this prayer and we offer it to God with the with the amen at the end um, so um, yeah it's a powerful um, 
thing. And that's partly also why in the midst of it, Deacon Lincoln and I will, will bow a lot in the midst because remember we are in God's very presence when we remember these things collectively as his body uh, on a Sunday with communion. Please, yeah. Great question. Um, and, is, and is it at a certain word? Yes. Um, so the origin of the bells seems to have a pretty functional origin. If you think about the giant churches of like old Europe, like the cathedrals and things, sometimes like, remember, did you watch any of the coronation ceremony with King Charles? Oh. Yeah, I'm going to go back and watch it. Yeah, but where the altar is and where the people are, there can be like a hundred feet sometimes between there. And especially in the days when, if the priest was praying in Latin and the people didn't know Latin, you kind of needed to know like, when was the prayer over and when can you come up and get communion? So it was kind of the original sacramental dinner bell. Like, okay, the <laughs> prayer's over. And so, but then bells have this sort of numinous sound, this kind of tink, tinkling kind of, um, kind of, do this have a pretty sweet sound? And so the aesthetic of that was then sort of thought of as valuable as well. Like, oh, it kind of adds to this quality of like, this mystical, numinous worship that we're a part of. And so it got connected to the ritual moments when we say, holy, holy, holy. And so Deacon Brandon, Brandon ran them then. And then also when we, when we present the memorial offering, we lift up the, bread, the sacramental bread and wine, the body and the blood, it gets rung then as well, which is also in the case of, I always find it valuable. I'm a bit ADD by nature. And so if I'm distracted, the bell sort of snaps me in and it's like, oh yeah. The body of Christ, like, um, and then at the great Amen, concluding this great prayer, it's now it's done, and that's the way of saying, okay, you, you all are about to be invited to come receive this sacrament as well. And I remember when when I was first um, serving as a, as an acolyte, um, I can't remember. It must have been Father Timothy, but somebody, some whoever it was, told me, you know, when you get the great Amen. Just bring it for all your worth. Mm. And it was, and I think it was for uh, for the Easter service. Mm. Yeah. yeah, the first time, the first time I served as a mm. Easter. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's just it, it's it's appropriate to to make as much noise as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a joyful remembrance. Yeah, and then we go straight in from the the great prayer to the Lord's prayer, um, which is wonderful because. Having been reconciled to God, he's not just we're not reconciled to him only as our king, as the Lord of the universe, but as our father. And so traditionally, the Our Father was not even printed in prayer books in the Middle Ages because it's the prayer that Christians, only Christians know. It's like the intimate sort of household prayer of Christians. Um, and it was traditionally also done even in a soft voice because it's such an intimate prayer. Like you're praying to your, your own father. Um, my grandpa, who's very, keeps his religion very quiet and to himself, but um, they were, he was in the, um, the Sequoia Forest in California, and he just like touched one and said, my dad made these. And it was just a tender moment of like remembering, that we, when we say our father, we really mean it. Um, and um, yeah, and so, you know, St. Augustine at one point says, like, of course God doesn't, can't hear the prayer of non-Christians because until you're reconciled through Christ, the Bible's clear we're enemies of God. But once you are reconciled to God in Christ, it's like when we pray to our Father, he, he describes it like, we're like children who crawl into our Father's lap and we get to whisper our needs and our plea into his ear. And it has that level of tenderness. Um, so that we pray that our Father at the very epicenter of our Eucharistic worship, because now we're coming, drawing so near to God, we call him our Father.
Um, and then, from the uh, farther we go to on page 118, the fraction, um, it's called that because that's um, one of the traditional places in which you can break the bread, and that's where we break it when we celebrate here. There's, two, there's one other place you could do it, but this is where we do it. Um, and as a way of remembering that Christ's body was broken, and that from the sort of, you know, Jesus uses that parable of if a grain of wheat stays by itself, you know, it dies, but if it goes into the ground, no, it, it's all alone, but if it goes in the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. And so the body of Christ being broken on the cross as well, and then allowed him, you know, his death led to his resurrection, led to his ascension, led to the very capacity that we could feed on him through this sacrament. Um, so, and then we, we recall the deep connection of God's saving work in communion that Jesus instituted the supper on Passover, that he died for us at Passover, just as he had spared his people from the destroying angel at the original Passover, just as he set his people free from bondage at the original Passover. He's done all those things, you know, leveled up by, by orders of magnitude in the new covenant. And that Passover connection we keep, we remember in the strange, and this is the language from 1 Corinthians, Christ our Passover. He is our Passover. He is the one true lamb of which all other lambs were just the, the signposts. Uh, and he is sacrificed for us. And I love that present tense. Not to say, because, because Jesus is God and man, everything he did is like eternally present because God is eternally present. So when we say he is sacrificed, what we mean is the sacrifice that he accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago isn't 2,000 years ago. That is still the reality we live in. He is sacrificed, which is why we say Christ is risen, not was risen, not has been risen. The grammar is important. He is risen. And even at Christmas, we say Christ is born. You know, it's, it's, he is these things because he's God. He's, they are perpetually true now um, as he is God. So, yeah, so that's, that's what we said, the fraction. Um, any other thoughts from anyone? Questions about Lord's Prayer and the, and the fraction? Well, then we come to the prayer of humble access, um, which I love at multiple levels. Um, okay, Bible trivia quiz. This, the fifth line of the prayer, the fourth and fifth line, um, we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table. Where is that in the Gospels? Do you remember what story that, that line comes from? Dogs, yeah. For the king's table. Right. He said, "If I'm a dog, I'm your dog." Yes, <laughs> that's right. Remember that that story in the Gospels. And what was the beef there? Like, why? What was happening there? What What was her identity that made? She was a Gentile. Yeah, Syrophoenician or Canaanite. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So, so she's a Gentile. And so, one of the things I love about this prayer is we are remembering actually that we are Gentiles grafted in to this covenant made with God. Like we are not worthy so much as we are taking the very words of the Gentile who was rebuked gently by Jesus, but whose faith Jesus blessed her and healed her daughter. Um, we, are, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs. This is true at every level. First, because we're Gentiles, but second, because we're sinners. We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs because we are sinners. But you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. So this is really like a devotion that um, it's, you know, the liturgy is corporate, 
but this is the devotion we each kind of take privately as we're about to come to the rail. Lord, I'm not worthy to come on my own merits. You know, you know the, the, te- the great teaching that was polished off and polished back up in the Reformation of we are kind of righteous before God only because of Jesus, not because of what we've done. This prayer reminds us of that. We do not presume to come to this your table trusting in our own righteousness. This is the gospel, uh, but in your abundant and great mercies. And then grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh and to drink your blood that our bodies and souls may be washed and cleansed. And so it's sort of this prayer of preparation of um, coming to the table in the right frame of mind, humbly, the prayer of humble access, you know, access like access way, like coming up to the table. Bless you. Bless you. Um, and then we pray um, Agnes Dei, which is Latin for Lamb of God. Um, and then again, connecting to that Passover connection, you know, the Christ, the Lamb of God. Uh, and then we repeat it three times and, and then we get to receive communion. Um, and I just love both communion invitations so much. The gifts of God for the people of God. Some liturgies say holy things for holy people. Um, and then I love the personalization of it, that we aren't just cogs in a machine, right? Take them in rooms that Christ died for you, not for y'all, for you. <laughs> you individually, yeah. Use guys. Use guys. Use guys. Uh, and feed on him in your hearts by faith, that this doesn't work by magic. It's, we, our faith is what catalyzes the gift of this sacrament to then be for us a refreshing of the new covenant and of salvation. And then the second one, and I preached on this a few months ago, but for the longest time, I thought the marriage supper of the Lamb was a picture of heaven in Revelation. I'm 100% convinced after having added more stu- attended to that passage more. more um, the communion is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, and the, it, heaven is like the bliss of honeymoon. <laughs> like it's after the marriage supper. Uh, this is the marriage supper. Is communion. So blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper that I'm as well placed here because it's saying anyone who's hearing this, you are invited. And then, and then communion is distributed and we receive, just like in the old covenant, um, one of the offerings, the burnt offering, was burnt in, I think in the times before Jesus, the old covenant. One of the offerings, um, the whole burnt offering, the whole thing got, got burned to ashes and smoke, 100%. But all the other offerings, a portion was burned, and as the smoke went up to, in the atmosphere, symbolizing kind of that God received it. But then the other portion, the priests would eat. Uh, and so most of the daily, all the daily sacrifices and many of the sacrifices, the priests, the Levitical priests, would eat a portion of the animal that was killed, or the the bread that was baked, because a grain offering had oil mixed in, which we would call bread dough. So bread would bake on the altar, and the priests would eat some of it. Um, and the altar wasn't a table, it was like a fire pit, a giant fire pit. Um, so in this new covenant worship, we offer this memorial sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and then we eat it, which means we all are the priests, the royal priesthood of the new covenant, who get to eat a portion of the sacrifice, the memorial offering, uh, and participate in it, and by participating, just like in the Passover lamb, you eat, a, you eat the sacrifice, to say, I'm a part of this promise of God. Same thing, new covenant. 
we eat the sacrament, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, to say we are part of this covenant and we are the royal, the holy priesthood of God participating in this offering. Um, so the eating of communion is the thing. That's what Jesus said to do. Remember, take, eat. And that's what got forgot sometimes in the Middle Ages. And uh, as Anglicans, we've really put front and no, you. The po- point of communion is that we would each of us have our bodies and souls fed and strengthened by the very body and blood of Christ through this sacrament as a conduit. Um, so the eating is the thing. Um, which is why we surround it with so much sort of reverential focus and attention in our liturgy. Stephen plays music and it's solemn and thoughtful. And I just love, before I was up at the, the holy table, it was always just me the highlight of every week was seeing the whole congregation when I was sitting in a pew and seeing everyone, all, where, you know, rich, poor, you know, sick, healthy, like all of us coming forward, we all need the same medicine and we're all on the same footing here. It's the same sacrament. There isn't like one sacrament for the upper class. And one, it's like, no, we all need the same Christ. And just seeing like everyone come forward. And it's, it's so rever- It's always been thought of so reverently and solemnly in the Anglican tradition, in all the, the great tradition, um, that the reception is, is so important. I love how you say our name. Hmm. That means a lot. That's really cool. Hmm. I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. I, that was something that the parish I grew up in not grew up in rock that's not the road went to after college i should say um the priest did that there and i loved it so much too i just sort of kept it from being just like some corporate act but a personal communion and so even though the prayer book doesn't say you can say the name there i just kind of sneak it in i think it's okay um so yeah, and then we give thanks to God for having refreshed us in his covenant of mercy. And we have a song, a post-communion song, and then we pray this prayer that's the post-communion prayer, which is all thanksgiving. Right? It begins at the top of page 121. Why do living God? We thank you. Um, and I love the sort of double meaning. We thank you for this thank you, for this Eucharist. You know, Eucharist means thank you. We thank you for feeding us in these holy mysteries Again, he's suggesting that we don't know how it works. We just know that it does. With the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And for assuring us through this sacrament of your favor and goodness towards us. That we are true members of the mystical body of your Son. The blessed company of all faithful people. And are also heirs through hope of your everlasting kingdom. And we humbly ask you, Heavenly Father, to assist us with your grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship. We're kind of asking for grace for the week ahead. And then, and do all the good works that you've prepared for us to walk in. We go and live as Christians as we've worshipped as Christians. That prayer we pray every morning prayer, that we praise you not only with our lips, but with our lives. And so we kind of go out and then go live out our obedience and following of Christ with our lives. I know it's really cheesy, but I've been to a couple of churches I just love where they have above the door of the church, have you seen that? You are now entering the mission field. I love, I've seen it, not in Anglican churches, but at different like Alliance churches, but it's kind of cheesy, but kind of great. Like this is your mission field. Like you're going back out to it. Um, maybe if we put it in Latin, <laughs> it would pass Anglican taste standards. Um, but no. Um, Maybe we could do it in pig Latin. So. 
now you are entering a your Ishinmil fay. But yeah, and then there's a, a final blessing, um, which comes um, from Philippians, uh, and blessing in the triune name, um, and then the dismissal. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how the service wraps up after receiving. Any other sort of thoughts or comments on this well, final well, part of the liturgy? Yeah, I wanted to come back to yeah, the, yeah. the post-communion prayer. Yeah, say yeah. That, um, that piece, um, especially the, assuring us through the sacrament of your favorite goodness towards us, um, that was really important to me, like when I was going through that spell of anxiety and, mm. and associated with that was a lot of scrupulosity mm. and and it was, you know, there were times when I would take communion and seriously be afraid I was going to drop dead because <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't, because I was, I was afraid that I hadn't like correctly measured myself and, and every time we got to that, there was this reminder that no, because you've taken it, that's a, that's a reminder that you are part of the body. Mm. And so, I mean, it, and, and, it's, and it's only now after, you know, after being on the other side of that, that I can look back and, and see how much that really helped me, mm. even in the midst of just a, a terrible mental health struggle. Um, and, and say that, you know, these words are important, it's not just, they're there for a reason. They help us. Yes. Yeah. 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 There was a, uh, I had a priest once, and he used to say that uh, whenever he came to the table, he had this deep sense of unworthiness. And so he'd say, like, I am not worthy to receive this, but I will be once I've received it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Mm. Yeah. It's one, what you touch on is sort of, one of the deep riches of participating with this worship week after week after week is in different seasons of life, different yeah. lines of these prayers connect and anchor and shape and, you know, through the course of a life we're being refined by this, the, the content of this, of these prayers and texts. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, yeah. And then, um, the, the recessional cross at the end, when we take the cross out sort of, um, has a sort of direct your attention quality, like for this, you know, for the hour preceding, our attention's been on word and table, and then where eyes kind of follow the cross out, and it's like, yeah, go follow Christ out there too, you know, kind of, kind. Of, yeah, see, that's something. our version of, of yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. And is it always a cross and not a crucifix? No, it could be either. Oh, yeah, I've seen both. And this is sometimes a crucifix and a cross. Yeah, it's sort of just like what you have, what you. Ha- have I guess I generally prefer we do so I've done the bear cross for Eastertide just because we we do own that one and it seemed like the most fitting season to to use it as like you know Christ is risen but then I I find such deep value in the representation of you know a sculpted form of Christ's body on the cross to remind us of Christ was a real man who really died that most of the year we have the crucifix Um, because he is we can, it is true to say right now, Christ has died and Christ is risen. It's all true of him. Like he bears the scars showing his death. Um, so generally, I've, uh, be, uh, I personally prefer a crucifix there. And so that's why we had that most of the year. But that's sort of to almost like, I don't quite say it like this, but like almost like devotional taste. Like there are some people who, for whom a bear cross is a deeper, more joyful object of focus. But I, I found such richness in remembering particularly the sufferings of Christ. Um, 
that's why I, you know. But if we only had this one, it would be fine. There's no mandate about stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I have a friend, and I went to her house one time, and she had the big crucifix, and she got in Rome, hmm. and um, it had all these Kleenex stuck in it. And she'd say when she would pour her heart out, she'd take her Kleenex and stick it in the crucifix, like he bore her griefs and sorrows. I and love that. That's really moving. It's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a danger in today's like world, especially of thinking of Jesus as some abstract idea, and a picture of Jesus as, or crucifix just anchors down like he's not an idea, he is a man, a risen man who is fully God, but like who bears our sorrows and really does, and not just in some abstract way or something. And this is helpful going through this because it used to be just be a crucifix, and yeah. I had I mean I didn't really grow up in church, but I didn't go to a liturgical church after, you know, after I came to the Lord. So I was like, oh, Christ, oh that's Catholic, you know. But now, like, to go through this and go, it has meaning. Yeah. You know, that, that is a reminder. It's not anything, you know, supernatural. It's just like that's a reminder of yeah. what the truth is. Yes. Exactly. And that's helpful. And even, like, going through what we did and how we're the whole service is remembering I mean you can just say the words but if you really think about what you're saying it has deep meaning yeah exactly yeah mm. deep magic deep magic that's right <laughs> like a CSD yes movie. exactly it is yeah. this is the deep magic that's right where do you think you learned it from <laughs> yeah right yeah Lewis was a deep, a deep devotion to the yeah. litur- the community liturgies of the Anglican church was he Anglican oh yeah yeah, through and through. Yeah. In fact, the what's funny is the the group of, of scholarly friends that helped bring him to Christ were mad at him because he didn't go either Orthodox or Catholic. Tolkien was Catholic. Tolkien was Catholic. Yeah. Tolkien was Catholic. Yeah. yeah. yeah.